Before we start, I'd like to encourage those of us sitting in the back to move to the front. There's a, there's a logic behind this madness, because at some point we're going to be interacting with one another, and it will be a lot easier to just turn to your left or your right or turn around and have to walk all the way to the back to talk to someone. So I know it's a little inconvenient, um, but please, if you could, please move to the front. <coughs> well, thank you all so much. Oh, compliance. That's great. Uh, thank you all so much for joining us for this morning's discussion on extractives, equity, and conflict. Lessons from work at local, national, and international levels. Um, I'm Raymond Gilpin. I work for the United States Institute of Peace, um, and we are proud to be a member of the um, Conflict Prevention and Resolution Forum. Um, this forum has existed since 1999, and over the years has hosted over 100 sessions like this, highlighting innovative and constructive methods to make peace and keep peace. And the goals of the forum are simple. And the forum aims to provide a secure venue for all stakeholders from various disciplines to engage in cross-sector and multi-track problem-solving discussions. And uh, the end state is to be able to explore possible solutions to complex conflicts. And uh, talking about complex issues, uh, we do have uh, the basket of complexity this morning, extractives, equity, and um, violent conflict. Um, these issues have challenged not just scholars, but also practitioners over the years, and raised a lot more questions than um, posited solutions. Um, questions like, um, what's the relationship between extractive industry activity and violent conflict? Is there a causality and if there is, what's the direction of the causality? How do we define the issues and the relationships? Um, what could we learn from local, national, and international level that could help us make smarter choices when we, when we confront similar problems in the future? Does the geography or nature of the resource matter when you're talking about how it influences violence and the type of violence, the duration of the violence. How well do, le do lessons transfer across space and over time? Um, uh, these and many other complex questions are why we will be spending uh, the next couple of hours together because um, we hope that we do have um, a forum where we'd all be able to contribute. Um, free copies of uh, CRS publication titled Extractives and Equity, an introductory overview and case studies is available outside. Please feel free to, to um, get a copy. I'd also um, like to refer you to USIP's International Network on Economics and Conflict, um, inec.usip.org, also a repository of um, great resources in this area. But uh, this morning's um, discussion is not going to be led by me, thankfully. It's going to be led by um, three very able panelists, and we're very um, honored and uh, privileged to have them here with us. 
I will introduce them in the order in which they would speak. Um, Rhys Wayne is the issue, Issues Advisor for Extractive Industries with Catholic Relief Services. Um, like the, the other panelists, she has a wealth of um, experience, not just in researching these issues, but also working in the field and learning from a broad range of issues. And I would um, not go into detail with the bios because you all have copies, but suffice to say that um, she um, brings a rich diversity of um, experience. And she will be giving us a, mac a macro view, or is it micro? micro. A micro view. Um, introducing us to definitions of what are extractives and then talking a little bit about micro experiences. Following her would be Isabel Munilla, who directs the um, United States um, Publish What You Pay Coalition, um, and she will explore more macro views and provide um, some insights into legal frameworks that um, would help us um, grapple with some of these issues with a bit more um, success. And uh, last but by no means least is um, Peter Rosenblum, I'm a professor at um, the Columbia Law School and he will be combining his sterling law credentials with an uh, amazing array of um, field experience in Latin America, Asia, and Africa. Um, we would have the panelists make um, introductory pre presentations, and the game plan is to go no more than 10 minutes or thereabouts. And following that, we'll have a brief um, conversation amongst the panelists, amongst the panelists, and then we would open the discussion to you and have you mull the issues over amongst yourselves before we have a Q&A session. I have been asked to remind you that this forum is being recorded and will be posted online, and by Raising your hand and taking the microphone, you are agreeing that your voice would be posted online without any further consultation. And uh, you are agreeing, you've, by raising your hand, you've consented to um, being recorded and uh, the um, recording being posted. And before I turn it over to um, our first speaker, I would ask us all to join me in what I like to call the um, silencing the buzzing machines. So if you have any apparatus that either rings, sings, buzzes, <laughs> vibrates, or dances, this is a good time to turn it off um, out of um, respect to our speakers and uh, other um, participants and also because um, those um, <coughs> cell phones, et cetera, usually interfere with the AV equipment. And so it gives me great pleasure to turn the microphone over to Rees Wan to make the first presentation. Rees. Thank you, Raymond. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for coming out so early on Valentine's Day morning. Uh, I, I realized that I did not check on how to, oh, good, that works, all right. <laughs> so, Technological problems solved so far. I, I wanted to start with um, 
just talking a little bit about what are extractive industries, why do we care, how it's linked to conflict. And uh, what, I've, what I've done with this map here is I've just colored in all of the countries that are defined by the IMF as resource rich. Now when we talk about extractive industries, we're usually talking about oil, gas, and mining. Often people include logging timber with this, but, but in the context of today, we're just going to be talking about oil, gas, and mining. Now, the IMF defines a country as resource rich if it gets more than 25% of the government revenue or more than 25% of its export revenues from extractives. So as you can see, there's a pretty big swath of countries that are resource rich. Many of these countries are also poor countries. Now, if you look at countries that have endured violent conflict in the last 10 years, that's also a pretty big swath. When you overlay them, red is conflict, blue is natural resource rich, purple is both natural resource rich and endured conflict, violent armed conflict involving the army in the last 10 years. So there are 26 countries that fall into both of those categories. Almost all of those countries are countries with very high levels of poverty. Now, if you look at where CRS works, we're working in all but five of those countries. So we're working in, 20, there, there are 26 countries, again, that have both conflict and natural resource wealth, high dependence on natural resource wealth. Um, CRS works in 43 of the 57 countries that are resource rich, and all but four of the countries that have had violent conflict in the last 10 years. Now, what's, what's going on with this? Oh, I'm sorry, and, then, and also we have had projects in the last four years in 16 countries. Uh, projects on natural resource extraction. So why do we care? Why, why are we even thinking about natural resources as an issue? There's a, there's a tendency for countries that are rich in natural resources to have high levels of conflict, high levels of poverty, great inequity uh, between high and low income, and high levels of corruption. They also have low levels of education, life expectancy, transparency. People talk about the resource curse. And as, as Raymond was saying earlier today, it, 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 it shouldn't be working this way. Resources should be a blessing. This is national wealth. But it's not going in, in most of these countries, into development. It's not going into health, education, programs that would help the poor. It's not going into infrastructure. It's often going into the army, going into keeping people in power. It's going into Swiss bank accounts. Uh, a, a study by the African Union several years ago looked at um, the, the funds that, that were squandered through corruption or dis disappeared or squandered. And in the, the 20 years prior to their study, they found that the amount of funds that had been disappeared were approximately equal to the entire amount of foreign aid to sub-Saharan Africa in that same time period. So corruption is a, is a very serious issue. And one of the things that's going on is that you have very large companies. And they're, they're, they're small companies involved in extractors, particularly in mining. Most oil companies are fairly large. But you have highly specialized companies negotiating with governments, with a few people in a government, 
usually behind closed doors, and the people in the companies have much, most of the time, have much more knowledge about the, the, the minerals and the oil, how to get them out of the ground, what their value is, than the people in the government do. So we're dealing with levels of, of power disparity. We're also dealing with societies in which there are incentives to get power and stay in power. And it, it's, it's not a very good mix. And Isabel is going to be talking about some of the, the ways people are looking at addressing this. There are a whole bunch of actors who are involved. Governments, companies, citizens. Citizens need to be working also to hold their governments accountable for the, the funds that they get from natural resources and how they're used. Militias and rebel groups, I, I mentioned that there's an incentive to stay in power. Well, there's, there's also a big incentive to, to get power because once you have that political power, you are able to control the natural resource wealth. So you have, you, you see an, an, an awful lot of, um, well, there's a, there's a higher percentage of coups in countries with, that are rich in natural resources than in countries that are not. So th this, this idea of trying to access that power and that wealth gets involved in, in everything. It, it becomes endemic in the system. And then again, moving back to Isabel, that there are internationals and structures and systems that allow this to continue to happen. So the ability to take funds overseas and the ability of, of companies and governments to be opaque about their transactions and about the funds that are transferred. These all contribute. So one of the, one of the ways I like to look at it is, is kind of this rainbow of following the money. These are all the different places in the system where advocacy or negotiation or monitoring can help pinpoint where the problems are and what the leverage points might be. The thing that, that I was going to focus on here is the publication that's out on the table that CRS, um, our um, PQSD department, just put out uh, on extractives and equity. Please take copies with you when you go. The, what we do in this book is we have an introductory chapter that gets into what extractive industries are, what are some of the dynamics uh, that you see in, in, in great detail, and what are some of the things that different groups have, have been doing in order to address the problems. Then we have three case studies, one on Peru, one on Angola, and one on Nigeria. Now, I'm going to talk just a little bit about each of these case studies. In, in Peru, we had people go out and look at um, a smelter in La Arroya. The, the church, the Catholic Church has been working with um, various groups within the town of La Arroya in the highlands of Peru, as, as many other organizations have been. And the, the town is one of the 10 most polluted towns in the world, according to the Blacksmith Institute. There's been a smelter operating there, a lead smelter operating for the past 100 years. Uh, but it was about 10 years ago purchased by a company in the U.S. called Doe Run. And part of the agreement when Doe Run bought the company was that they would do remediation and they would put in place pollution control, and they didn't. So you have a, a, a town where the smelter is the majority employer the town is dependent on the smelter, and yet when some researchers went in from um, St. Louis University, they found that 99.9% of the children in the neighborhoods near the smelter had high levels of lead in their blood. So there, within, we were talking about conflict. Well, there's, there's a conflict 
in the town between jobs and health. So how, how do you deal with that? How do you say, well, we want the smelter to clean up while people are saying, yeah, but then we'll all lose our jobs? Because the company's saying, well, if we have to put in remediation or we have to put in better filters, then it's too expensive. We're just going to have to shut down. So there was a lot of tension within the community while people were, were trying to work this through. How are they going to balance jobs and health? Eventually, um, through a lot of local research, local monitoring of the impacts, getting the word out to the media, a lot of solidarity with groups here in the United States, which is where the Doe Run Parent Company is, they succeeded in getting the government involved. And the government of Peru said, yes, absolutely. Doe Run, you have got to clean this up. And Doe Run said, okay, yeah, we will, we will, uh, but just give us a little bit more time. Give us a little bit more time. And eventually, the government said, look, you have to do it now because of all the pressure that people were putting on the government, people from the community and people from elsewhere. And Doe Run shut down. People thought the community was going to collapse. It didn't. And they're still working now, at this point, on how they're going to remediate this. The most recent, um, the most recent movement in this is that the, the Doe Run has um, brought suit against the government of Peru under the United States-Peru Free Trade Agreement, saying that the government of Peru has unfairly um, uh, put unfair burdens on the business. And they're suing for $800 million. The Angola case study. In Angola, uh, the government revenues from uh, oil is really the major part of the economy in Angola. Government revenues from oil are between 80 and 90 percent of the total government revenues. So government has to get along well with the oil companies. And many people in the government are on, are, are on the, the, the boards of the joint oil companies. So you have an, the Angola companies and international companies working together to exploit the resources. Lots of concerns about corruption in Angola. Not a lot of space for civil society to be able to say anything about it or to urge the government to make a difference, to make changes. The Catholic Church decided that it was one of the few organizations in the country that had the space to speak to the government. And they decided that in order to do that, they needed to know exactly what they were talking about. So they, they set up a small um, research unit within the, the, the Bishop's Conference of, of Angola that was supported by CRS and several other Catholic organizations from Europe. And that group did intense research on the impacts of the, the way the, the um, government was spending the oil money research on transparency, and research on what other countries were doing. And they published several bishops' statements about this. So the bishops made jointly some major proclamations with advice to the government on how to become more transparent and why that would be important. And one of the really important pieces of this was that in order to safely criticize the government, they had to have all of their I's dotted and all of their T's crossed. They had to have absolutely credible, reliable information. And that was what, what gave them the, the, the power and the ability to be convincing. Now, 
Angola is becoming slightly more transparent. I'm not going to say it's because of the church, but, but we do think that that did have an impact and was useful. Now, in Nigeria, the case study in this book is about some communities in the Niger, oil, in the Niger Delta, the oil-producing region of Nigeria, where conflicts with the oil company have exacerbated internal conflicts within the community as people, as different interest groups within the community jockey with each other over access to benefits from the oil companies. So what we did in these communities was we helped communities to put together more representative local um, governance groups so that they had women and youth and people from the different ethnic groups and people from the marginalized groups to come together to decide what are our priorities as a community and what are our goals in trying to negotiate with the oil companies and with local government. So by coming together and, and having one voice, they were able to work with the oil companies to design memorandum of understanding for corporate social responsibility projects that were more beneficial to the communities than what they'd had before. So we're just quickly going to go through some lessons learned. Uh, the most important thing that we've found in our work and looking at other people's work is that you need to build the capacity of all the stakeholders to better understand the problems and to work together to solve them. So that means working with people in communities helping them to figure out how to use their own voices to negotiate with people in power in companies and government. That means working with people in the companies and the government to teach them how to better work with communities. And it means facilitating ways for these groups to come together to talk to each other in structured dialogues that don't too often when you bring these groups together, there's, there's anger, and nobody wants to get in a situation where they're going to get yelled at. So you have to design um, fora where you have controlled conversations and structured dialogue. I, was, I mentioned in the Angola case study about the importance of clear, accurate, credible information. I cannot stress that enough. Inform if, if you put out information that is wrong, you have one thing wrong in your five-page paper, you're dead in the water because that undermines your credibility on everything else you're saying. And you can't just say, oh, we talked to this really super liberal, really green group, and they said this. I mean, you can say that, but you also want to have it backed up with information from the UN or the World Bank or the IMF that have, have a broader credibility in the eyes of the government and the companies. With, with companies, again, you want to build capacity and look for neutral brokers who can make a bridge between the companies and the communities. Another important issue is what is it that would make a company even want to talk to the, to the communities? Unfortunately, a lot of cases, it's been the conflict that has gotten the companies to, to have to talk to communities. And that's, that's not the desirable way to do it. One of the things that people have been doing with some really interesting success recently is working with share company shareholders. And Sierra started doing this with the groups in Nigeria in the early 2000s. And that has been really useful in getting the, the companies to the table. An advocacy. We find too often that people are going out there, advocacy at the local level often means, we demand our rights. We demand our rights, you stupid company or you stupid local government. And that it doesn't work very well. So trying to get beyond 
advocacy as demand to advocacy as what is the most important message? What, who is the decision maker that needs to change and what will get them to change their mind? So focus on who, what, why, design your message, get that out. And then again, networking with other countries. Thanks. Raymond's being so kind. Thanks. So thank you very much. I just threw this back up there again for the, because I just, I just love this picture of how closely linked conflict and, um, and natural resources are. And we can talk more about some of the mechanisms for that in the question and answer period. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much, um, for, um, Reese, for laying out um, a pretty broad canvas of issues. Um, I'll now invite um, Isabel to... Great. Thanks. Thanks, everyone. Um, I'm Isabel Munilla. I'm director of the U.S. chapter of the Global Publish What You Pay Coalition. Um, just want to check on the time real quick. Um, to give you a picture of who Publish What You Pay is, um, we're a global coalition um, of about um, 600 NGOs working in about six, 60 countries. The way that we're organized is um, around um, groups like CRS, groups like Oxfam, so it's a series of religious groups, environmental groups, um, uh, human rights groups that all want to work together on this very narrow issue of transparency in the financial flows between mineral and energy companies and governments. And um, what I should mention is that Publish What You Pay grew out of a recognition that these, these natural resource uh, financial flows were key to some of the conflicts that were occurring in places like Angola and other places. So in 2002, the Publish What You Pay Coalition was founded by Global Witness um, and a series of other NGOs in London to specifically address this problem. And the idea was that could we get these groups that care about these issues, like CRS um, and others, um, here in the US we have the Presbyterian Church, um, we've got Human Rights Watch, a uh, whole series of other groups working in the US chapter here. Could we get these groups to work together to find uh, mechanisms to address um, the transparency, the lack of transparency um, in these financial flows? Um, so. So, and I should say that our basic premise is that transparency is a necessary ingredient for establishing rule of law, accountability, um, and, and, and addressing some of these natural resource-based conflicts. So I um, just want to talk a bit about what's at stake, um, just to give you sort of a picture of, of, of uh, um, the scale of the problem. So, you know, in the picture you see um, our recent, the recent Nigerian um, protest and conflict around the removal of the fuel subsidy. That gives you sort of a picture of what we're dealing with. How many years has Nigeria been developing its oil revenues? Um, and if citizens are not feeling the benefit, even the fuel subsidy, which was taken away, and folks um, couldn't even get to work that week because the price of, of, of gas went up so much, um, you know, they're not feeling any benefit at all from, from the resource, and that's what led them to take to the streets. I mean, this is a key example. Um, and in 2008, um, about $394 billion um, was the total of oil and gas exports from Africa. That was nine times the aid flows to Africa in that year, um, and about over 10 times the agricultural produce exports from the continent. So it gives you sort of a sense of the scale of, of the revenues that we're talking about and why our coalition has, has decided to work on this. So our, our key ask is for mandatory disclosure laws. So, 
oops. So uh, the coalition in the United States began in about 2004, um, working with members of Congress, um, specifically Barney Frank, um, Senator Cardin, Senator Luger, um, and the intention was to try to change securities laws so that um, oil and mining companies that were listed with the SEC would have to file um, their annual reports and include payments to governments, both US and foreign governments, as part of their annual filings. So over a series of years, Publish What You Pay with other groups ran a campaign with congressional champions and managed to include a provision within the Dodd-Frank Act in 2010 called Section 1504, also called the Cardin-Luger Amendment. Um, and as you see behind me, um, lots of press on that. Um, this uh, law originally was introduced by Senator Cardin and Luger as the Energy Security Through Transparency Act in the Senate in 2009. Um, and they took this, the, and this, this framing of energy security has a bit to do with the recognition that the lack of transparency in these resource uh, revenue flows creates conflict that creates a problem for U.S. energy security and U.S. energy supplies. So this was the framing um, that Senators Cardin and Luger adopted. Um, so I think that's important in terms of the history here. Um, and the SEC was tasked with drafting the rules for Section 1504. Uh, they were tasked with putting those rules out in April of last year. So Dodd-Frank came out in July 2010, April 2011, the SEC was uh, supposed to put out the rules. As many of you know, the Dodd-Frank rules have been delayed. So this is just one of hundreds of rules that the SEC is putting together that's been delayed. Um, and we hope to see rules soon. The current deadline for the SEC, their current calendar, is from January to June of this year. We're hoping to see something sooner. So what does the law do? So it requires annual disclosure of uh, payments to the U.S. federal government and to foreign governments in the annual reports of oil and mining companies, so they're 10Ks that they provide to the SEC. Um, it will be payments that are country by country, and then project by project, and then by payment type. And then these payments will also be tagged by the payment type, the country, the government entity that's receiving the payment. Um, and it'll include subsidiaries. So the purpose of the electronic tagging is so that the SEC will essentially have a database. So n I should say, not only will you have the annual report of a Shell, a Rio Tinto, et cetera, that you can download and look at that annual report as you can do right now, and that report will include this information, but also that data will be tagged in an electronic format. So in theory, an electronic web-based database should be able to read the SEC database. And these databases should be able to talk to each other. And we're working right now to create a platform where you can search by country, by company, by government entity, and, and pull out that data. So that was the, the intent behind that. So in terms of who's covered, um, about 90% of the internationally operating oil companies um, about, and their subsidiaries, um, eight out of 10 of the largest mining companies in the world, um, and then in terms of market capitalization, about 40% of the total global value of the extractive sector. Um, so this slide gives you a sense of, uh, of, of who's covered. It's a variety of companies, both, both U.S. and foreign. We've got um, some Chinese companies. We've got PetroChina, Sinopec, um, Sinook. We've got uh, Petrobras, um, a number of others. So quite good coverage, um, as well as their subsidiaries, which is important. Um, so in terms of the benefits, um, 
as Reese mentioned, what's absolutely crucial and missing right now is clear and accurate, consistent, and regular data that's being produced. Um, right now, there's an initiative that's a voluntary initiative for governments called the Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative that governments can sign up to and require companies um, in their jurisdiction to publish the payments that they're making to the government. The government publishes its receipts and there's a reconciliation process that happens that's monitored by a multi-stakeholder committee of civil society companies um, and, and government. Um, now, that, that system is, it's an interesting system. Public Would You Pay helped to found it. We support it. We serve on the board, but it's got some big limitations. The governments can decide what that data looks like. They can decide on the, the, how regularly it comes out, et cetera. Um, so the benefit to communities and others is that the data that will come out from the, the SEC and these companies will come out on a regular basis. It's produced by corporate accountants who are known in many cases for their accuracy, um, maybe in some cases not. Um, so, so in terms of what communities will get out of this, communities want to know how much that project down the road is producing for its government. They want to know because they're bearing all of the environmental and social impacts. They want to know and they want to weigh the costs and the benefits. Also, in many cases, the contracts require that companies pay a certain percentage um, of, of the total revenues produced or some part of the revenues produced back to the communities. Communities want to know if they're getting their fair share. Um, they also want to know, indigenous communities will also want to know if they're getting their fair share. For example, in the Philippines, many mining projects require that a percentage um, of, of those projects go back to indigenous communities, and they want to know. But typically, these communities have no idea what the total payment to the government was. So the same goes for local governments. In Indonesia, for example, local governments within their jurisdictions, they want to know how much that project in their jurisdiction that's creating a lot of environmental issues, uh, demographic issues, et cetera, conflict perhaps, they want to know that, that they're getting their fair share of the transfer they're supposed to get according to the law. So in Indonesia, in like most, uh, most resource-rich uh, countries, a trend that the payment goes from the company to the central government and a percentage goes back down to the local governments, they want to make sure that they're getting what, what they're due. And without knowing the total payment by project from the company, they're not necessarily sure. The same goes for investors. They want to know which project is producing what bonus. So in a place like, like Angola, several years ago, it's not uncommon for there to be a $1 billion signing bonus. Obviously, investors want to know which, which is the project that, that's harboring that liability. Um, and then in terms of companies, many companies see this um, see the publication of payments to governments as an insurance policy. And that's why Newmont Mining endorsed the underlying legislation, the Energy Security Through Transparency Act, because they see this as a way to inform uh, communities that this is what we're paying your government. If you have a problem, you're not getting what you need, go to your government and, and find out more. So I did, I, and I apologize, I'm going a little over. Um, I did want to give you a picture of what's happening now. Where, where is this debate? Um, and it is, it is a debate. Um, what we've been having is a wonky behind the scenes public comment battle between the, the senators that were behind this, this, this law. So we have you know, some of the most powerful senators uh, uh, in, in, in our Congress writing to the SEC clarifying congressional intent, which is basically that all companies are covered, no exemptions, granular reporting, um, and that no loopholes are given. 
Um, so we've had recent letters from, from these senators, so Senator Cardin, Leahy, Kerry, Schumer, Levin, um, and, and, and also from, from Barney Frank, um, that you know, remind the SEC what the congressional intent is to make sure that they come out with strong rules. Um, and then we've had comments from USAID, uh, we've had comments from the Department of Interior, obviously our coalition has put comments in, we've had comments from the largest uh, the oil and, and uh, gas unions from Nigeria, the steel workers in the U.S., et cetera, Catholic Relief Services. So, and then on the other side, we've had the American Petroleum Institute and its members that have essentially asked for the SEC to violate the statute, to provide them with exemptions in cases where countries have a disclosure, an anti-disclosure law in place. So essentially, it's a tyrant clause. It's a get-out clause for any government that wants to put an anti-disclosure law in place. So for example, if the I I Iranian government wanted to put a law in place that said, no, con no company operating in our jurisdictions shall disclose its payments, an exemption written to the SEC, the one that API is asking for, would, would essentially give Iran an out clause. So we wouldn't know what payments are going to that country. Um, so there's a bit of a battle going on here. Um, that battle has actually reached a fever pitch right now, where the API has laid down a lawsuit threat. January 19th, the API legal counsel sent a letter to the SEC saying, essentially, if you don't repropose the rule and come out with rules that we want, um, this will not survive judicial review. So essentially, a, a pretty clear lawsuit threat. We had a few lawsuit threats last year, but this one was the most serious and the most concrete one. So I, I wanted to give you that because I wanted to tell you that there, there, there's a couple things at risk here. That what the US law does is it's a new global standard. It sets a new global standard for disclosure that will have an impact that we haven't yet seen before. This is exactly what we need. Um, and we've seen this law being emulated by other markets. So the EU in October proposed uh, legislation that more or less mirrors the, this, this section 1504 of Dodd-Frank. So good stuff. Um, they're in the process of, of, of working it through the council and the parliament. It's going to take some time. We've also got the G8 that made a commitment um, in their declaration last year um, at the G8 summit in, I believe it was in June. Um, G8 government said that we will look at mandatory and voluntary disclosure mechanisms. Um, great stuff. Australia is moving forward. We have a campaign in Canada. Um, we've had the Hong Kong Stock Exchange that has an, uh, a listing disclosure requirement as well as the, the uh, London Stock Exchange, the alternative investment market. So we've got good stuff going and we're worried that if we don't campaign against secrecy. We don't campaign against uh, companies that want to maintain their tax payment secret. They want to keep their deals hush-hush. Um, that we are going to lose those gains in other markets that will help us get broad global coverage for this type of disclosure. So just wanted to let you know when you saw outside, um, there's an ad campaign Welcome that's gone out uh, by our coalition Spotlight. members. Um, I, I see their logos are not here right now, but you can see it <laughs> the on the ad. The um, that's a full page Wall Street Journal ad that's going out today. There's banner ads on Politico, The Hill, and other places. Tank. There's Adapted petitions at Oxfam America and one campaign that are going to the SEC and opponents. to um, oil companies to urge them to step away from the lawsuit and let the law do its work. An um, and I encourage you to check out Nautilus's both Oxfam and, and one campaign for those petitions. Nautilus's this was a stunt that was done on Friday morning to kick off the campaign. This was a stunt asking the question, is the SEC in bed with the... This is my last one. Yeah, is the SEC in bed with the oil companies? And this was done by Oxfam. Just a bit of a... 
just to ask that question, get some conversation around this. Um, upon hitting an enemy, so it deals damage I'll end there. while both his target um, and Nautilus are pulled everyone. together. I actually like the, the slide if Nautilus the, hits terrain instead, the, the, he is pulled uh, to that location we'll, we'll, and the we'll cooldown is much Dredge line functions as a great initiation, mobility, and escape tool. Thankfully, it fills these roles quite well, even with only one point. So I take a rank in dredge line early, but max it last. And that, Titan's uh, Wrath places a damage-blocking shield on Nautilus for a few seconds. While the shield holds Nautilus's basic attacks, they play a large damage-over-time effect to his target and all surrounding enemies. Titan's Wrath deals the most damage of any of Nautilus's abilities as long as it holds, making him extremely scary if ignored. Because of this damage, I take it at level 1 when jungling, make sure to take a second point early, and consider maxing it somewhere between levels 9 and 13. Um, Riptide explodes the, the area around Nautilus in a growing rate, damaging and slowing um, enemies caught in these explosions. Are, are enemies can be hit so multiple be times by these explosions, but take reduced damage by the additional hits. The use of Riptide is great to damage and prevent the retreat of running enemies, especially because they'll hit the expanding explosions as they run. As his primary disruption tool, good. I take a point a early show, and consider maxing it somewhere um, between levels 9 um, and 13. Among you, how many have been Nautilus's focusing on some specific conflict explodes areas the area like around the Nautilus in a Because of this damage, Congo I take it at level 1 so when jungling. Make sure to take a second point early and consider maxing it somewhere between levels 9 and 13. And how many of you Riptide explodes the area around Nautilus in a growing rate, damaging and slowing enemies caught in these explosions. Enemies can be hit multiple times by these explosions, but take no, reduced damage by the additional start. hits. The use of Riptide is great to damage and prevent the retreat um, of running enemies, especially okay, so because they'll hit the um, expanding explosions as they run. Put that name as his there, primary disruption tool, I take a point early and consider maxing it somewhere between so levels 9 and 13. The last Nautilus' hours ultimate is Depth Charge. Behind Nautilus fires the, a shockwave that chases the, the targeted enemy. Any enemies hit by the shockwave as it travels are damaged and knocked up. Once the shockwave reaches its intended target, he takes even more damage and is also stunned. Generally, Nautilus will want to well, aim at a target far in the back to damage and disrupt the most enemies possible. As with all ultimates, and, uh, I rank it up at level 6, 11, and 16. Nautilus is an exceptional ganking game, meaning that you should always look for lanes that you can gank. Seeing Sona and Caitlyn overextended, I push into bot lane. If you can help it, save dredge line. So I walk up and tag Sona with Riptide, Titan's Wrath, and Staggering Blow. Now I tag Caitlyn with dredge line into Staggering Blow. She's and, forced to flash if she doesn't want to take Riptide. In the Congo of now in turret range, I leave her and wait in the brush really in case there are counterattacks. If your opponents see you coming and run, it's okay to leave a dredge line. I head in and hit Riptide. I charge after them and cut Caitlyn with staggering blow, allowing us to kill her as I flash away from the turret. For the second kill, I wander in to tank one more turret shot and then run into the brush to recall. This gives Graves enough time to take down Sona before falling, and we come out ahead 2-1. That is Generally, also in after some way philosopher stone, you should be able to rely on it for mana regeneration. And the, the Once the ancient golem respawns, ping and call over a teammate to grab his buff. Keep track Congo, of how much damage it's taking, and once you've gotten it low enough, take a step back, stop attacking, and other, receive endless praise from your teammate. One of the best traits of the line is if you're aiming for a champion against a wall, you're guaranteed to pull yourself forward even if you miss. I head to gank Sona, but she dodges dredge line with flash. He dodges dredge line with flash. 
Finding death charge in this staggering blow, we pick up a quick kill on Sona before retreating out of turret range. In teamfights, do everything you can to focus on squishy enemies near the back. I notice I can just barely tag Caitlyn with Dreadfly, which gives us sea of endless praise from your teammates. Landing depth charge in this staggering landing depth charge in this staggering blow, we pick up a quick kill on Sona before retreating out of turret range. In teamfights, do everything you can to, to focus on squishy enemies near the back. The I notice I can just barely tag Caitlyn with Dredgeline, which gives our Ziggs just enough space to land his combo, taking her down um, with Ignite. Well, I pop Shirelia's Reverie to get him back to safety, and notice the enemy Ziggs now available. I turn to cast Death Charge and dive straight for him. Titan's Wrath keeps me safe as I hit Riptide on every single enemy. Kill Ziggs uh, and flash to safety. Between the damage and disruption from Riptide while taking all the damage from our opponents, my team also cleans up two more. Use Dredgeline's ability to hook terrain with a reduced cooldown to chase running champions. Here a running Shogun is sure to make it away, but I Dredgeline to the turret, dodge rupture, walk past all the minions, and then tag Shogun. An immediate Riptide and a staggering blow gives my team just enough time to chase him down and pick up the ace. The democracy in Dominion, and Nautilus performs and excellently with his team, uh, that we landing a disruptive dredge line to start the kill on Ezreal. The and then as Lee Sin takes on Jax, I head up to stop Garen and Dr. Mundo from assisting with Riptide. What, what does it mean in I head in to help kill Jax and then stop Garen and his traps with staggering blow. Once they actually turn to fight me, I tank for a little while and then use the terrain to easily land a dredge line and pick up a health The Crystal Scar's close quarters can also force you to take your time. Here as we chase Dr. Mundo by the refinery, I have to wait to clear the wall before tagging him with dredge line. This holds him in place long enough for us to pick up the kill and continue our offense. For runes, I take armor penetration marks. Armor seals, kind of magic resist per level glyphs, and gold generation quintessences. In Dominion, sub out their gold the generation quintessences from movement speed. The now goal here is to get very tanky while also doing strong early game damage through staggering blow. My masteries are 0.21.9, focusing on being as tanky as possible, plus movement speed and cooldown. If jungler, you want to make sure to grab reductions to minion damage and bladed armor in defense, plus increase future buff duration and utility. For summoner spells, smite and flash are great for jungler. When not jungling, it's about smite for heal. In classic, I want tankiness and cooldown reduction. We wanted all sorts of other transparency. We wanted transparency in terms of how that money was going to be spent as well, down to be able to ninja tabby or mercury threads required and expand the Aegis of the Legion and Shirelia's Reverie. Counter your opposition with items like Frozen Heart, Force of Nature, and Locket of the Iron Solar. In Dominion, you'll have very similar build goals. Pick upgraded boots as quickly as possible and add in similar items. Shirelia's Reverie, Frozen Heart, Force of Nature, Frozen Mallet, and Locket of the Iron Solar. Thanks for tuning in to the Nautilus Champion Spotlight. Please subscribe to the Black Games YouTube channel above, and don't forget to thumbs us up just below the video. The amounts of money that are paid back to local communities because of their rights under the under the under the under the law for for a percentage of the of the oil money. I'm sorry, the oil or mining or other minerals money. So transparency. We got around to looking for transparency for the contracts. We were late to figure that part out. We were late to pay attention to the fact that we often don't know what's in the deal itself. But amazingly, within the last five years, that we've, we've caught up on that. And that, too, has gone from a period where the companies said we can't do it and gave a million different reasons, law or policy or otherwise, and the governments would say, well, we, you know, we don't really know. It's the companies that say they can't do it, to a point where 
no, there's, there's nobody out there making strong economic or, or legal or policy arguments for not disclosing their contracts. It's increasingly becoming the norm uh, with the work that Isabel and her team did last year. The International Finance Corporation adopted that policy into the uh, performance standards that the contracts should indeed be public. So we're, we've been pushing in areas that are, that, are, that, are, that are each important because of the advocacy communities that are in a position or should be in a position or enabled to take care of those things. So transparency. And then a focus on, on leverage. Where are you going to use this transparency? Who's going to be able to use it? And, and where in the supply chain does it work? You know, there's a lot of places along the way where there's not much we can do. You know, we don't know when it comes to the thousands of negociants, the traders who are operating in a space, that's hard. When it comes to Malaysian Smelter Corporation, we thought that was really hard. When it came to the, the, the no-name intermediaries that don't have a, a, a shareholder meeting or a listing in the United States, it was very hard to reach them. And so what happened, as what, what happened within all of corporate social responsibility activism, is you look to the next step in the chain to where the name brand is, to where the leverage might be, to where there's going to be a shareholder meeting, to where there's going to be consumer influence in some way, uh, directly or a proxy through NGOs and other kinds of activists, and where there's going to be the opportunity to vote and use your, 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 your political vote in order to make some kind of effort. Now, it's a weak system, and what's not in that system are the hard norms that we would have thought of legislating at some other time when you just simply legislate how a company has to behave. What should be the social conditions in which the company operates, whether they're here or they're in Peru or they're in the Congo. But you know, we're all neoliberals today. We, we, we can't get around globalization. We don't think we can legislate in those terms so instead, we use these other elements that are softer in their way, they're process-oriented to empower other sectors to take measures. And we haven't abandoned entirely the notion of actual norms because there are codes of conduct and there are standards and there are laws in different countries that these voluntary or other mechanisms can reinforce. And they're there and there's still social conditions and there's conditions in the, in the, um, in the performance standards of the IFC or others. Now, I've probably used up already almost all of my time in telling a broad tale, but I think it's really important for me in terms of situating and bringing the rest of what's here. Now, conflict. Well, it's very hard to say, you know, conflict or no. Sometimes we in this area, I think, you tend to, to if, if, if we tell you the story of Equatorial Guinea or Angola, where at this moment nobody is being killed on the streets because of the, because of, in a way that you can draw a direct line from oil to killing, is that, that, that doesn't mean that it's a conflict-free society, obviously. We know that, 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 that Equatorial Guinea is, is a dictatorship that is founded entirely on what was an ExxonMobil oil discovery and, and find and exploitation without any kinds of social conditions in place and has enabled a, 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 a perfect fueling of dictatorship in a way that crushes any kind of opposition or civil society systematically as time goes on. So that's one end of the spectrum. Let's say that's not conflict. Let's say that's the usual, that's, the, that's just the extreme story of, of repressive administration state. And this machinery that we're talking about, it's intended to address some of that. And you can kind of go through the countries, and I did in my own mind, kind of across the spectrum thinking, okay, Chad, was that you know, conflict, oil, not? 
Sudan, Congo, the industrial side of the Congo mining. Um, as critics of the, uh, of, have pointed out of, of the 1502, you know, none of the conflict of the Congo, none of the, the armed conflict and rebel group issues are going on in Kasai or Katanga where the industrial mining opportunities are, especially Katanga. And yet, what's happening there because of people like Katumba Mwanki and what they were able to put into place is, is certainly the aspiration of Equatorial Guinea, if not the realization, in terms of trying to control what the, where the money goes. Um, many of you are probably not aware of the extent to which in India today, mining and conflict are tied up at various levels where there are Naxalite battles or where the mining companies are perceived to be paying off rebels in areas, whether it's in um, Andhra Pradesh or it's in Jharkhand or elsewhere, often off the map because we tend to pay mostly attention to where there's foreign direct investment and not to where the local companies are. So then we get over to something, to, um, to something like Eastern Congo. The critics in Eastern Congo, those who are deeply involved in the conflict in Eastern Congo are angry about the simplification of mining and conflict. And they're right to be angry about it. It's, it's absurd to think that mining equals rape, cell phones equals rape in the context of what's happened in the Congo. But from my involvement and in watching and being involved in the Congo now for over 20 years of different kinds of advocacy, no, none of the sophisticated analysts have said that. They have been looking for those hooks in the way that I just described, for where you can put the leverage, where you can make a difference, where you can galvanize a, a consumer, a shareholder, a voter to be aware and to be able to intervene to take steps. And the ways that they've proposed the taking of steps, again, is entirely consistent with that approach. Get the hooks into the companies that are susceptible in terms of their brand and their reputation and make them do what? Do what we've been saying is part of the necessary toilette for cleaning up the whole sector, which is about transparency, which is about the due diligence of knowing who you're buying from, knowing where things are coming from. So the, 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 the nature of the conditions in 1502 is not unusual for the sector. The focus on the, on, the, on the branded companies, the listed companies, is not unusual. What is it that's upsetting to people? Well, the, the political simplification, certainly, and the sense that it may be having disruptive effects on the locals at this time. And there, I think I'll stop because it's part of the big, big discussion um, many of us are involved in recommending regulatory change. Regulatory change shifts economic burdens and it shifts economic incentives. That means it's going to disrupt interests and it means that it's going to undermine patterns of survival and livelihood for those at different levels, including the poorest. And in some parts of life, we assume that and we take the risk and we think we're going to do it. In other parts, we back away. And I would say that for the argument that's happening in the Congo, we're only now starting to look more closely at the, at the reality that must be involved and the, and the factors that are lined up in favor and against some kind of regulatory change. Yes, these, these conditions we're putting, we're calling to be put into place are having, maybe having disruptive effect. Maybe that's a, a good thing. Maybe it's a necessary thing. Maybe there's ways of, uh, of, of relieving it. Um, but to get there, we're also gonna have to, I, I think, um, address some of the, 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 the frank anger that is, um, that is consumed the advocates in this area. 
thank you very much. And uh, thanks to all the panelists for what I think, um, and I hope you agree, were very rich presentations. Um, starting with a broad overview of um, the extractive, the challenges that we have. Um, one thing that I'd like us all to do before we start discussing is to suspend our assumptions because um, I could feel that um, we have a lot of people who are grounded in the assumption that there is a resource curse, that there is a resource curse de facto. And we haven't really broken it down because if you look at a number of the countries that are affected by resources today, they had bad governance even before the resources. And so to what extent could we attribute the problems today exclusively 50%, 75% to the resources? What, does, what do resources bring to the mix that makes it so toxic and so difficult to address? We talked a lot about transparency. Uh, one point that um, Peter uh, mentioned is that um, I think he was probably alluding to the fact that in, I think it was 2006, Nigeria published all payments to district and sub-district level at, from the national petroleum account. So every person, and I have a copy of, of the publication, Every, person, every Nigerian citizen should be able to pick it up and see exactly how much of the oil money came to my village or my district. Did that make a change? Not, 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 not really. Are there deeper institutional or political issues that we need to unpack so we could understand this problem better? In the, um, about... Um, 10, 15 years ago, we did some mapping of violence in Niger, Niger Delta and superimposed that on political events like elections, like demo political demonstrations. And there was a striking correlation. Um, does that tell us that there is a bit more to this dynamic and that understanding it does not just mean advocacy for transparency? That's revenue transparency. What about contractual transparency? Doing some work in Afghanistan, which is um, soon to be the world's poster child for dysfunctional resource um, states. Um, in 2008, with the involvement of pri the private sector, multilateral, multilateral institutions, we had a contract internationally bid contract for the copper mines. And it was such that the difference in terms of the bidding between the successful bid and the second bid was so wide, almost a billion US dollars, that it seemed, you know, this is a shoe-in. But there was a lot of corruption, including an alleged $30 million bribe to the Minister of Mines who summarily um, has refused to release, the, his successor has refused to release the contract and it's being amended to this day. 
We had a lot of contractual openness. We had the framework in place. What happened? These are not easy issues that you knee-jerk to from an advocacy or an activist, solely from an advocacy or an, an activist position. Mm -hmm. I think we need to think very deeply about how all of these things are connected and what we need to do to close the information asymmetry loop. Because Reese was spot on. That is one of the major problems, especially if you look at it from a principal agent perspective and see the owners of the national resource as the principals and those who have to um, exploit it as the um, agents. And how do we ensure that we have information flows that do not lend themselves to the type of violence we see? Um, so if we could, you know, suspend our assumptions for a while and let's think differently about these issues and uh, see if we could come up with, first of all, alternative or augmented explanations for what is going on in the northeastern DRC, in Afghanistan, Burma, the oil and gas. Mm -hmm. Burma earns over a billion dollars a year from oil and gas. We've never seen the contract, but there is, you know, we're told that there is a lot of uh, progress as far as openness, etc. How do we, you know, square these complex circles? And so today, I, don't, I, I, I want us to move away from what we know and look at the problem a little differently. We're going to engage the panel, but I've been asked before we engage the panel to give you an opportunity to engage amongst yourselves. Five minutes, I'm told, to turn to two or three people sitting next to you in the audience. <laughs> Turn to one or two of these people sitting next to you in the audience and pick, pick one of the issues that have been discussed. One of the issues. And um, I would sound the gong in five minutes and then the panel will be all yours for questions, clarifications, and more discussion. So let's take five and just turn to someone else and um, chat about one of the issues. Where's that idea come from? That's a great idea. Yeah, that's an awesome idea. It, it came from the organizers. Search from common ground. That's, so, that's yeah. a good idea. Okay. So, so let me just do it. Yeah. It seems yeah. like such a church moment. It's a great church moment.
Thank you so much for um, thank you so much for indulging us. Um, one of the things that the forum tries to do is give hallowed space for discussions, not just by the really smart people up on the panel to the to my left, but from you who um, have varying um, perspectives. And so, what we'll do is um, have comments or questions in groups of four and then have the panel react. Um, please introduce yourself um, before you make your remarks. Make them as 
brief as possible so as many people as possible will have an opportunity to participate and also the um, will have time for our excellent panel to respond to your questions or comments so let's the floor is open for the first round of questions or comments please wait wait for the microphone Hi, my name is Diana. I work for the U.S. Office on Colombia, and uh, actually, Colombia has become, in the last 10 years, a source of conflict also because of mining, biofuels, and whatnot. And it's fueling also member, uh, um, illegal armed groups in Colombia, both guerrillas and paramilitaries. But my question, I guess, is um, what is the role of governments? We talk a lot about companies, and all of you refer to companies and mm -hmm. what the, the governments have been doing in terms of bringing more transparency. But I see, for example, in the case of Colombia, we just recently signed a free trade agreement with the U.S. government, which would bring a lot of foreign investment to the country and would actually mean um, uh, liberalization of some of the regulations in terms of of foreign investment within the country and the impacts that this is going to have for not only the the conflict the exacerbation of the conflict but for Afro-Colombian and indigenous communities within those territories so my question is again what is the role of the of, of governments because I see the Colombian government deregulating a lot of policies and the US government pressuring for that in order to pass an FTA Thank you. Another question or comment? The gentleman right here. Hi, my name is Basil Bogas. I'm with Manchester Trade. Um, I just wanted to ask about, the, the idea is that if you have a country with good institutions, you can actually benefit from your national resources, case in point Norway um, and others. Um, and if you don't, then they actually become a big problem. The idea would be that through the increasing of transparency, you could actually enhance those institutions. And um, I think that's a wonderful idea. I just wanted to ask how exactly that would happen, keeping in mind that you know, you, you're going to have good players who, with added transparency, are sort of going to move into the light and into a moral high ground. But you're going to have a lot of players as well who are now in shady business and who are just going to move deeper underground. Thank you. Questions, comments? The lady in the back and... Hi, my name is Mary Lisson, and um, I'm an independent observer here in Washington for the last three years. And my observation and comment to what you've been saying here is probably the issue of equity to begin with. Um, and whether you see a systemic problem, problem the way the wealthy uh, companies, mostly American, Canadian, and Western European companies, go into developing poor countries. And uh, the driving motive there is always profits, making profits. Equity is never an issue. And of course, the whole legal system, beginning with the US Constitution, uh, speaks about we can get away with anything we, can ha we want to because we're making profits. And that's, that's all that really matters in the end. Life's not fair. And uh, the Constitution does speak about uh, equity in law and in fact for everybody. Uh, the 11th Amendment, if you know, takes away that, uh, that right and, and that principle. So 
I see it being a systemic problem and that until we address issue of equity as something that we really believe in and want to implement all over the world and maybe stop our gambling and addictions to uh, alcohol and drugs in this country and so on and so forth, um, I don't think too much is going to change. I'd like to hear your comment. Thank you. Um, just one more. I think there's a lady in the white scarf. Hi, thank you everyone for wonderful presentations. Um, my name is Megan Chapman. I'm uh, here with Global Rights. And um, my question is for any of the panelists, um, really looking for um, building off the comment of my, um, of my colleague over here, um, wondering about the role of, of, of good governance and um, whether in any of your advocacy efforts you work to identify um, examples of perhaps poor countries that have actually taken um, a better approach to governance and transparency and perhaps pointing to what some of the benefits of taking that approach are um, rather than always looking at the um, perhaps bad examples. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much. I'll start from the, um, my far right with Peter and work our way down. I will try and represent the far right in my replies. <laughs> <laughs> um, actually, you know, I agree that not too much is going to change. But um, we're all in the business of, uh, of moderate amelioration, I think, uh, as opposed to radical revolution. And um, it's, it's very painful to, uh, to be working in many of these settings where you realize that the power of uh, the investor and the power of capital is, has been framed in such a way, especially in this um, post-Cold uh, War era, of, um, of being really dictated largely by the external actors. And, um, and that means that, uh, that, that the, the, the national companies really haven't stood a ch chance in most countries. Now it's interesting that there are some contrasts. There, there are countries like Chile. In the mining sector and natural resource work, nobody really likes to talk about Chile because it's a, it's, for one reason, is because it's a successful um, 1950s model where a national copper company dominates the copper sector, manages the wealth well, manages investment well, and there's also um, private investment, but it, it is unlike um, all of Africa where the World Bank um, worked to basically end the role of, of national um, mining companies and other national companies, um, Chile was successful, managed to continue, and you know, nobody is emulating that perhaps because those, there, there just still isn't the legitimacy in the national investors that allows for them to gain the, the capital and, the, credit and, and the, the larger opportunities for investment. So we are operating, as I said before, you know, when I said that we are all neoliberals, that's, that's the context in which we're operating, and I, I, it's true, I take that for granted. And I look at these, all the things we've talked about as piecemeal um, solutions or efforts to try to reorient um, what is the, the where is this where the investment works and to try and limit some of the more negative elements um, the competition from China Brazil India has has helped in some way because it's it's actually runs counter to many of the the neoliberal assumptions it it's it, it makes it, it provides the possibility of of offers of opportunity of infrastructure and investment 
that um, the neoliberal consensus tried to unbind in the last generation to try and delink. There should be no connection between the social investment, the infrastructure, the transfer of technology, and the and the investment. That's the goal of bilateral investment treaties, of the movement around the multilateral investment agreement on investment. The Chinese are, are upending that in some way. It's not an, it's a good thing in some ways. It's not a great thing. We we don't know in the case of the Congo, for example, because of, of the lack of transparency, we're not in a position to well determine what China is in fact paying for its its mining resources. So the that we have to start applying the same kinds of transparency rules there, but it does it does mix things up in a way. So I just I did want to just throw that out there as, uh, as something that I think is important. Um, I'll say two words about about good examples. You know, it's always sad to to start thinking of the good examples. You always have to start with Norway and then say uh, and others. Well, like South Africa two centuries ago, Australia, you know, the United States, Canada. Who who else? It's it's. I think the micro examples of improvements are things that we can see, and um, as much as Peru, for example, serves often as an example of problems of social conflict, Peru is one that we in often love to look back to because it's it has it 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 had transparency, a degree of transparency before anyone else, and and it's legislated, and it's implemented in ways where you have serious civil society involvement, you know, with the new government in Peru things didn't improve in the way that one wanted, but we saw it happening in real time. Important people were brought into the Ministry of Environment. Important people resigned from the Ministry of Environment when the government didn't fulfill its commitments. And so you have political options that are enabled by the transparency that Peru has taken as part of a cardinal faith. And I think we're even seeing in some of the, you know, the, seeing the really rough spots, the Congo. I can, I can go on for hours about the, uh, about the battles that are being fought over industrial mining in the Congo, you know, would you ever have expected to see most of the mining contracts in the Congo? I, I, I wouldn't have, but we've got them. Do we expect to see, disclose the, the secret deals that the national mining company, Jekamine, has made to sell off some of its assets? Um, we're going to see them. We've actually, we're now getting those. And, and bit by bit, we're getting access to information, and there are people inside of ministries who, knowing that there's an international standard that they can aspire to, are willing to take risks to leak documents, to help obtain other documents, to point out when things aren't there. So I see micro-improvements enabled by the transparency in ways that I think were, you know, make me more hopeful, but I have a sad, rea the sad reality is still that there's Norway and, and no one else of the last uh, five decades. That's sombering, <laughs> I have to say. Um, I think um, I'll come back actually to, to a point that Raymond made, which I think is, is really a crucial one, at least for our coalition. Um, the, the members of our coalition come to transparency as a necessary but insufficient ingredient to lead to accountability, right? Um, this, our coalition works on a very, very narrow piece of the puzzle, and I, I should emphasize that, and the co entire coalition is completely aware of that. Um, the, the success of focusing on transparency has been that transparency and financial disclosures is, is, is a little bit neutral in some ways. Um, most of our coalition members really care about the environmental and social impacts 
frankly. That's why they come to the table. And they're using financial transparency as a wedge to begin to open a door on other issues. Um, so, but, but, but I think I should, I should mention as well that um, to, to get to the question of the role of, of, of governments, um, that um, the, at least for our coalition, uh, mandatory payment reporting it is one piece of the puzzle. We work on contract transparency, we work on licensing and bidding transparency, we work on uh, budget monitoring and expenditure. Um, but th those issues, all of our folks are working at their national levels, national chapters work on these issues, um, and they see at least this payment disclosure as a wedge to have a conversation about a contract as a wedge to have a conversation about a national law on payment disclosure or budget transparency. It's a wedge, and, 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 as, and as Peter said, I think there's incremental steps that can be made. So, for example, in Angola, a place that we would typically think of is not very open to transparency and that opportunities for citizens to make progress there is limited. However, I spoke with an Angolan journalist um, who I'm, we're headed to meet with the SEC today together. Mm. Um, uh, and he mentioned that, look, with this information, I, we can continue to put in complaints to the Attorney General's office. And, and he says, I know that our government pays attention to those. He said, you know, we had a newspaper that was publishing, uh, that was publishing uh, exposés that were not good. It had only 10,000 circulation in the capital city, which, you know, in Luanda, and, it's, and that's an enormous city, but that paper was shut down, even with just a 10,000 uh, issues of circulation. So th these small steps are actually being noticed and do have impact, even in the places where we don't think they're going to have an impact. So I, I'm a bit of an optimist in that, in that regard. And in terms of the, the role of government, um, what we hear from our coalition members is that they're working those channels. They're establishing these relationships. And so take, for example, the Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative. That initiative is really useful. The data that comes out of that initiative, it's lacks in quality, it's getting there, it'll, it'll improve. But what that initiative does is it establishes a forum where civil society, government, and companies can sit at the table and have a technical conversation about data. And that sort of brings the tenor of the discussion down, makes it a little wonky, establishes nice working relationships between government agencies and NGOs, and what we find is that maybe we won't have, you know, a, a good relationship with the oil or the uh, uh, mineral ministry, but definitely with their Environmental Protection Agency, definitely with the uh, Ministry of Finance, many of those agencies are not involved in the oil deal-making processes or mi mineral uh, deal-making processes and are left out. And they want to have additional information and transparency. And we found that in many cases, the relationships with, with NGOs can help to strengthen these agencies' ability to, you know, to, to voice, uh, voice their complaints about uh, opaqueness in the energy uh, um, deal-making process. Um, uh, so, and in addition, I would say that um, there's there's quite a bit of conversation around around contracts, environmental uh, clauses in contracts with NGOs. Quite a bit of um, of, of help from government on those, and, and a great way to build relationships. And I think that the role um, of government there is crucial, um, and not just executive agencies, but the parliament. Um, we've had really great relationships with parliamentarians, um, and, and, our, and our coalition members are specifically going out to executive agencies as well as parliamentarians and finding that the more educated that folks get, um, the, the, the more progress we can make. Um, so in terms of the, what's happening in Colombia, 
and the role of governments there? I think that's a really important question. And I know that um, at least the Presbyterian Church USA is one of our members and are quite concerned about these sorts of disclosure issues being included within discussions of, of the free trade agreements because exactly what if we're if we're generating additional investment liberalization of, of, of regulations in Colombia is that really the outcome that we want and then what sort of responsibility should the US government take for any outcomes there that would be in conflict I think in some ways to the general thrust of at least this law that we're focused on um, so I, I think that that's an open that's an open question and we can catch up offline on that I think that there's some members of Congress that would be interested in, in talking about that um, Otherwise, I, I did want to mention um, um, the importance, I think, of, <clears throat> of looking at the whole value chain um, and of the importance of diagnosis and monitoring. I think that we need to remember, at least for the revenue transparency movement, um, that we're in early, this is early days. This is early days. I mean, Publish What You Pay hasn't even been around. It'll be 10 years, uh, you know, next year. Uh, we just haven't really, or sorry, this year, um, we just haven't been around that long. The Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative has not been around that long. It's a little too early for us to expect that these things are going to give us huge benefits. I mean, look at where we are in the U.S. I mean, we had our minerals management scandal five years ago. I mean, that, and that was an absolute over-the-top Hollywood-style scandal where you had regulators in bed with industry giving away contracts or in hotel rooms with hookers. I mean like over the top and that's here so with the reorganization of our minerals management service and the in, and now an independent agency that's tasked with managing royalties and revenues already in just the past couple years that agency has fined shell chevron occidental and a number of others for willful misreporting of their royalties so we're looking to other countries like they have a lot to fix, but we've got quite a few problems here, and I think that that's evidence of these are incremental changes that we're going to make. These are government governance fixes that we need to make, not only here but in other places. And I think, um, I think these sorts of movements can help us to get there. But obviously, they're only one one piece of the puzzle. Well, and following up quickly on that, um, the 1504 legislation that's still stuck in the SEC will affect companies in the U.S. so that the U.S. government will have and U.S. citizens will have information on what oil companies are paying. And, and as people said, yeah, it, it is, it's the entire value chain. And, and I, I went way too quickly over a, a slide that I had that was, I call it the following the money rainbow. You can't, the, what, what Isabel is doing is, is a very necessary piece of the puzzle, but it's a piece. And you have to, I mean, and we talked about contracts, but before you have contracts, you have to have good legislation in place in those countries that sets some, some basic standards for those contracts, that sets some basic standards for environmental impacts, for social impacts, for how revenues will be used. So it's, it is the whole value chain. Then you have to look at, I mean, um, Raymond was talking about the information is available in Nigeria on what goes down to the state level. And when people went out and looked at the state level and what it was being spent on, they found some hilarious things. I mean, one of my favorite ones was um, someone from um, Human Rights Watch went out and talked to gov state governors in the Niger Delta. And one of the guys was, one of the governors was touting this wonderful soccer, um, international soccer academy that they had put together with the funds from the oil revenues. And the soccer academy turned out to be about 2,000 tickets to the World Cup with private planes and hotels and big parties. So once you have that information, you can start looking at, at what, this, what the spending actually is. But you need that information in order to be able to pinpoint what 
where the gaps are between what is supposed to be received and what is actually spent. I just have to put in a plug because that, that report is written by one of my former students, Chris Albin Lackey, and it's called Chop Fine, and it's one of the really fabulous studies in this area that has brought together human rights and oil wealth. And it's a wonderful read. Um, good governance, and all of these questions dealt with governance. Obviously, that's, that's yeah, that's, that's key to all of this. Um, but you can't, and that's, that's one of the reasons we looked at different levels of this, you can't address environmental impacts, health impacts on people at the local level, and you can't address transparency at the national level by themselves. You have to link the local, the national, and the international. These, these are such big issues and the actors are playing on so many stages around a globalized world that you have to bring these things together. So when we're talking about improving, yeah, in Colombia, yeah, the government needs to be doing a much better job. Well, how do you do that? Tom Bamett, you should talk to Tom afterwards, this gentleman here was just down in Colombia talking to people at the Catholic Church about the very issues that you were talking about. And someone from the church is going to be up here next week. We'll be talking more with him about ways, w different leverages, different pressure points on the government and different ways that different actors can be involved. Uh, often we see people demanding corporate social responsibility from companies. Well, should it be the company putting in a school or should it be the government putting in the school? And we need to look at where, where those funds are going and who you should be doing advocacy with and about what. Um, someone asked about the, um, the, the systemic problems with, with the North. Well, it's not just Northern companies that are profit-driven. We see some really egregious profit-driven actions from local companies as well. And there was a movement in Canada recently um, that narrowly was voted down. Um, to have Canadian companies be bound by Canadian law when they're operating in other countries. So in the environmental and social protections they have to put in place in Canada, they should also put in place whether they're working in the Congo or in Peru or in Malawi or wherever. That was defeated, but that is, but, it, but it's still out there. That's an important movement and I think that's something else that we should be looking at. You can, you can work it with companies individually. You can work with best practices for companies writ large. Um, uh, Peter mentioned the, um, the work at the UN on business and human rights and, and, the, and the natural resource charter. And working with governments and, and trying to help local people work with their own governments and the, and the, and the companies there. And with th there are, as, as Peter and Isabel were both saying, good examples out there that are incremental. And a lot of what we do in this work is help people in different places learn from each other. So a, a lot of we as kind of international actors, we're, we're linking people across countries. We're helping people from one country. Uh, well, for instance, the, the Angola example that I, that I spoke about, we had a, a bishop from Congo Brazzaville go to Angola and talk to the bishops in Angola about the work that they'd done in Congo Brazzaville. And that helped the bishops think about how they could even approach this issue, what were the theological justifications they could use, and what were the ways to keep people safe while they were doing it. And, and I, I will say that there, uh, Elizabeth mentioned this, there's the importance of the wide variety of actors in this. She, she went through a list of, of, of a bunch of them, and we do find, and I, this is one of, the, one of the things that I think has been really useful with um, faith-based groups' involvement in this, that the churches are able to speak with a moral voice that 
some, some of the other organizations don't have. And they, they bring other incredibly important things to the table. But we do find that that moral voice does, does help in some situations dealing with people in government and companies. Um, so it's really important to have broad coalitions that bring in lots of ideas. Uh, thank you very much. Yeah, and just to echo, because um, I get this question quite often about, are there good examples out there? Are there successful countries? I think it's very important to um, focus not so much on the end state of a successful country, but to look at where a number of countries that were really, really bad 30 years ago, <laughs> how far they've come, and what we, know, what we need to do to sustain that momentum. As an international community, we're really good at pointing out the bad things happening in countries, and not so good in recognizing progress and then thinking about smart ways to sustain progress. Um, there's, if you look at the um, early 70s, China in the early 70s, it was where a number of um, today's um, resource bad boys were. It did a resource commodity swap with Japan, and, th and 30, 40 years later, it's a completely different dynamic. Mm -hmm. Is it where it should be right now in terms of equity, in terms of um, poverty, in terms of human rights and openness? No. Mm -hmm. But it is being able to recognize the path and identifying what we can do to sustain that path. I think that's, that is really important. Um, Second round of questions and comments. There was a lot of buzz during the discussion times, so I'm sure we have good stuff to share. Um, the lady in the cream sweater and then the gentleman here. So, the lady right here. Again, nice, crisp questions. Hello, my name is um, Faith Hanna. I'm from the Fund for Peace, and I'm actually originally from Panama, where um, there are plenty of mining operations. And something that I've seen in my home country is that there's definitely a struggle to balance protecting human rights as well as the economic rights and the livelihoods of, um, of different people in my country and abroad. And something that, that sort of linked up with what, um, with what you were speaking of and especially what Mr. Rosenblum was discussing is um, that the simplification between mining and conflict can often lead to um, de facto embargoes on certain minerals. And since the Dodd-Frank Act, there has been a de facto embargo in, with minerals in the Congo. And this has led to the suffering of many people in terms of their economic livelihood. So I would like to know whether you believe that um, that the Dodd-Frank might be too strict and too stringent in some areas, and therefore it's really sort of affecting the livelihoods of these people, or if you believe that it is, that is not too strict and, and this is just temporary and a temporary de facto embargo. Hi, thank you very much. Great presentations. Merrick Hoban, Consensus Building Institute Neutral Facilitator, working a lot on uh, extractive disputes on behalf of governments, companies, and communities. Uh, I agree. Uh, financial transparency, revenue transparency, is a terrific wedge. Another helpful wedge is recognizing the micro, very micro examples of company improvements in behavior and rewarding those. 
they don't want to talk about what's going well often because it draws attention. And when it draws attention, they also get more negative impact uh, or made negative coverage on, their, uh, on what they're doing in their operations. Mm -hmm. Connecting with companies that sometimes have been bad actors, if not the majority of the time, Chevron, the Shells, the Exxons, et cetera, but also working with them to try and get them to name what is working uh, can draw things forward. There's not enough of that going on. Thank you. Thank you. More questions? <coughs> uh, James Verai, and I'm Corporate Responsibility Advisor with, with Chevron. Um, and I, well, first let me just say, since a lot of the, the conversation has been focused on transparency, that, um, that we are, we support uh, the issue of transparency. We have been members of EITI since its founding, and we currently serve on the board. And, uh, so we are supportive of that. And I just want to uh, uh, agree with a lot of the comments that were made in this, this last round of comments and, and pointing out that although we are supportive of, of transparency, it is, it is not the silver bullet. It is just part of a, a, it is a part of the solution to addressing some of the issues that we've, we've talked about today. And, uh, but I, th I feel like, not, not in today's discussion, but in other discussions on transparency, that it is often focused or presented as, uh, as a silver bullet or as, as the ends as opposed to the means mm -hmm. to an end. Yeah. And so uh, I appreciate the, the comments that, that were just made and discussed and talking about it as part of a, uh, a broader um, uh, a suite of, of, of solutions mm -hmm. uh, or, or issues that need to be addressed. Um, and I also, uh, I think, Risa, I particularly liked your, your points on, uh, it's not just the information, but what you do with the information. Mm -hmm. And also on the needs to, for a, a bridge, I think is what you, the term you use. And, and for example, we've worked with the Consensus, Consensus Building Institute in the Niger Delta and use them as that, as that bridge. And that's why we've been supportive of EITI because it starts that dialogue between governments, uh, civil society, and, and, and companies um, from which that, can, that discussion can, can grow. Mm -hmm. Uh, but one thing that I, I, I will say is I, I feel like um, going back to the issue of, of transparency being an, an, an ends and not a means is in, in my experience with, with people in the communities, and it may not be as, as vast as any of your experience, uh, but in my limited experience, uh, the, with people in communities, so not necessarily representing, representatives of NGOs, but the concern is not so much about how much money is coming or are they supposed to be getting, or the percentage of money they're, they're supposed to be getting, as it is about schools and roads and healthcare. That, that's, in my experience, that's really what the concern is about. And, and uh, also on, on the point of how uh, uh, the uh, legislation might provide an insurance of sorts for companies where companies can say, you see what you're supposed to be getting from your government, so go talk to your government. And I have to say again, from my experience, that argument never works. Be, people in communities just don't, they don't, they don't take that. They, if, they won't say, oh, okay, I'll go talk to my government. Because usually the government is not there. A lot of these areas are rural areas. Uh, and they look to you as a company, and, and they still put that back on you. Uh, so I just wanted to share that, that perspective as well, and I'd like to get your thoughts on any, any of that. Thank you. And I think one last comment from the lady in the back. 
My name is Deirdre LePin. I'm a consultant in corporate responsibility. I previously worked as a manager in community development for Shell in Nigeria and then Niger Delta. And um, I, I'm now a fellow at the University of Pennsylvania uh, African Studies program. And um, I just, we were talking in our little subgroup here about the key question as being how to share. And that's what EITI and so on is about. Uh, this January, we saw a very interesting example in Nigeria, I think, of a movement forward on this question, because we talk a great deal about the relationship between communities who are those who suffer but potentially could benefit from resources. We talk about the companies that have a responsibility to uh, behave uh, according to uh, performance principles of various sorts and standards. And they have a self-interest, of course, in avoiding conflict and ensuring that development takes place in their areas because otherwise it impacts negatively on their business. So then they become major advocates with governments who may be less responsible and actually less caring about their people than the companies are in the areas where they're working because they live in a distant uh, capital and they are the um, uh, beneficiaries, you might say, of, of, of a huge uh, amount of resource wealth um, themselves. Uh, and what we have seen in Nigeria, a report just came out yesterday, is that the inequity in uh, the poverty inequities have actually grown tremendously in the Niger Delta and other parts of the country since 2004. It's increased by 20%. And this is at a time when legislation required more funding to come into the state governments from oil production. So that the, the point was raised earlier, where is this money going? Um, it, 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 it's obviously not creating an equitable uh, environment. Um, now, what we saw in January was a situation where the people began to speak. Uh, uh, Major General retired Ishala Williams, who was one of the founders of Transparency Nigeria, said on a blog that, um, finally, I have always said, said that it's the people that are going to stop corruption in Nigeria. It's the people who are going to hold the, co uh, the government's feet to the fire. So all of these discussions that we're having, these organizations that we create, these systems, the EITIs and so on, they have a value. But what will make the difference is when, in a democracy, the people stand up and demand the government do the right thing. Mm -hmm. And until that happens, I think we're going to have a continuous struggle with this issue, and I think the conflicts will continue. But it's the people that need to be supported in this process. Thank you very much. Um, a lot to Can I put in one little plug? Excuse me. Uh, since someone uh, mentioned uh, Chop Fine, which is an excellent book, um, the Wilson Center has just published a uh, book on the Niger Delta, which is called um, uh, Securing uh, Development and Peace in the Niger Delta, a uh, Social and Conflict Analysis for Change. This uh, book, which I was a co-author on, uh, pulls together information that has never been available in one place before 
and it could become a kind of primer on what's going on in this region. Uh, you can download it if you go to the Wilson site and click on publications, you will find it. Thank, Thank you very much. Um, I'll turn it over to the um, panel once more and uh, appeal for really concise responses. <laughs> and um, then um, probably take uh, 30 seconds to round up. And in that roundup, assume that you're speaking to an audience of um, practitioners. Okay, if you had an audience of practitioners who could effect change, what one thing would you leave them with? One thought would you leave them with that would make a difference in this extractives, equity, and conflict um, nexus? Is that, so, is that after responding to the questions? Yes. Or, okay. <laughs> um, well, I'll, I'll, I'll take a crack at, at a few of them. Um, starting with Faith's question on um, the Congo, it, 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 that, that's a very serious issue. And when, when we were first working on the legislation, we included in the legislation funding for livelihoods for people who would be displaced from the mining sector. And that was taken out of the legislation. And, but, but it is something that we as a development and humanitarian organization and that most of the other organizations working on, on this issue have been very aware of and very focused on. And one of the things, I, I went out actually to the Congo in June, um, out to the Eastern Congo, because I was concerned about that very thing. Oh my God, we're here supporting this legislation. Is it hurting people? And went out and taught, we have, um, we, we're working with um, the Catholic Church and Caritas and various other local organizations in the Kivus. And I went in and I asked people who were working in these communities, and I was told, yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot of displacement, but in most of the communities where we are, we're seeing the mines continuing to operate at about 50% capacity, between 20 and 90% capacity were the different reports that I heard. And they said that it was mostly the local people who were continuing to work in the mines. So it was the people from the local villages their livelihoods weren't displaced as much as people who'd come in from other parts of the country to those villages to work in the mine. And many of those people had left and gone back home. And what, what we heard from several people and what we, what we heard from um, the head of the Congolese Bishops Conference who came to the US to advocate for this legislation, he basically said, if you could see the kinds of jobs those people have, you wouldn't worry about them losing their jobs. They're working in miserable, horrible conditions for almost no money. Now, this is not to say in any way that it's good that people are being economically displaced. But what the bishops also said was, you, you can look at people's income for the next several months, or you can look at whether they're going to be alive next year. And we have to look at both the small picture and the big picture in this. So yes, absolutely more needs to be done for livelihoods for people in the Congo. But what we're hearing from some of the leadership in that area is don't stop. And we're hearing from the, the comptoirs, we're hearing from people across the sector. If what, what the problem right now is that there's this been this long delay in the legislation. So there's all this uncertainty, so no one knows what to do and no one can move forward. So they need the legislation soon, they need it to be clear so that they can decide, okay, we're not going to be miners anymore, we are going to go back to agriculture. Because agriculture, as Peter was saying earlier, is the mainstay of this area. This is not, these people 
I mean, it's millions of people who live in the eastern Congo, they're not miners. They're mostly people who live on agriculture, but they're not able to get their products to market because of the violence. So, um, then, um, <clears throat> sorry, I'll try to do more. <clears throat> Excuse me quickly. <laughs> um, lots of examples of company improvements, and, and we do try to talk about those. <clears throat> Good thing my voice is going. <laughs> And yes, every, everything that you said, people are looking towards companies for, for, for support. And, if, and our, our view is that if, if the companies are going to, to have corporate social responsibility funding available, then work with the communities to help focus it on what is most important and most useful for those communities. And wh whoever helps as a bridge, use those bridges, help, help people come together. Um, uh, Lots more, but I'll leave it there and move on. Okay, thank you very much, Isabel. Um, sure. Um, <clears throat> it's a great. I mean, these are really important questions. Um, I think um, um, our friend from from CBI, to to your point, I think what you were asking is, you know, um, you said that you don't believe enough conversation has been happening with the corporate sector, um, and then and not enough focus on what's actually working. And I think in terms of conversations on revenue transparency, I would disagree with you on that. I think there's been plenty of conversations going on revenue transparency. And as you know, to build consensus, there must be faith among the parties, correct? And, um, and the, the presentation that I, that I showed you all today talks about a corporate campaign. Since the founding of Publish What You Pay, we have not done a corporate campaign. And that's because we have been in dialogue with companies on, on the board of the Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative, individual dialogues, we've all headed to Houston. You know, I think that there's been lots, lots of engagement and at lots of different levels. Um, and, um, and, and, and this is the year after so many years, 10 years of being in place that we've found that the, the communication and the dialogue has broken down. And that's why our campaigning members are now taking a more a harder stance and that stance has not been we did not send up warning flags that this stance was coming so let me give you a couple of examples um, the the when the the laws that uh, gave rise to section 1504 Dodd-Frank when they were being negotiated they first this began in 2006 there was hearings on the hill former shell um, uh, uh, ex executive was on that hearing. Um, there was a few hearings. There was meetings with legislators, et cetera. Barney Frank introduced uh, uh, legislation in 2008. There was also Senate legislation in 2008. There was also Senate legislation in 2009. Lots of opportunities. The, the industry was given an opportunity to craft that legislation not just one or two, multiple opportunities to craft that legislation. We went to Houston, wanted to talk about it, let's do it together. Nope, the door was closed. Um, and, it, and then now, after all those years, even at the point when this was going to be inserted into the, into the Dodd-Frank Act, and there was a no negotiation around the amendment in the conference, the companies were invited there. I understand that, that they stood up the, the congressional champions that invited them to come to a meeting, and they didn't show. So, Efforts have been made, um, and I think all along this process, we've had an open conversation with, um, you know, our colleagues, board members on the EITI board, Shell, and others. We've gone to the Hague, sat down with the controller, I and mean, we've had these discussions. Now, if if on one hand companies are serving on the Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative board, 
They're a supporting company of the initiative, which assumes that you have a, a long-term view about transparency and we want what you want. Why at the same time would you sue uh, an, the, a, an agency of the US government, which will be an EITI implementing country, to prevent disclosure laws that would help to bring about EITI implementation in non-EITI countries? 30 or seconds. Sure, to bring about transparency in places where you won't have any. Burma, Iran, Russia, India, lots of other places. So for us, these are the questions that we're grappling with. And we said, look, if, 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 we, can't, if we can't solve these in these discussions that we're having here, these private discussions we're having in the public comment process with the SEC, we'll take this conversation public. And we said that last year, and we were pretty clear about it. And that's what our members had decided to do. So, so that's sort of where we are. That's sort of where we are with that. So, but to the point, there are a lot of things that companies are doing that works, and, and we, we applaud them. We absolutely applaud them and have been applauding and have pushed other companies to do the same, right? So, I mean, there's lots of really great work being done, um, but when we disagree, we disagree, right? Thank you very much. Yeah. Peter? I, I love hearing Isabel describe that, and uh, it recalls so much because I think she's being, she's, she's, she's so uh, gentle in a way about the, uh, the roles of companies, but what came to my mind, and I think everyone may have seen it at some point, was the kind of the crying of ExxonMobil after the fact when this came out, when the, when the, when the uh, council, was it the legal council from ExxonMobil's blog, acting as if they were completely caught by surprise by Dodd-Frank, what a secret insertion into a piece of legislation that they knew nothing about. And I, I just would echo that. I, I've been working on issues of corporate engagement for, for now the last couple of decades. Um, you know, I, the same things happened with the apparel industry 20 years ago. We watched the, the Nikes and the Adidas and the others and the kind of struggle, the sense that they weren't appreciated, that they weren't able to engage. They started to take some risks. Other people took some risks. Um, you know, it's widely acknowledged in the advocacy community that some of the best compliance work and social responsibility happens inside of those companies because of what they've taken on in the process. They've been, they've been acknowledged for it, appreciated for it, and engaged on it. And I think I've seen it at every stage of the way. So I, I have a hard time. I recognize there probably are certain circumstances where what you say is true, but sector-wide, I think that that's, a, that, that, that's, that's generally untrue in what's been happening. And on the Congo, I would just urge you to be skeptical of what you're, of the data that you're seeing, because it, or, or look for the data behind the claims that are being made. Because the initial claims about harm to livelihood in the Eastern Congo were based on, on, on anecdote. And I've been traveling to the Congo for 21 years. I've heard, I've never been to the Congo at any time except the worst time in history. I have never heard somebody say to me, things have gotten better recently. Because at every time, and it's, there's good reasons for it, people will tell you about the horrors. When a little bit of, of, of when the mining market started in diamonds in Kisangani in the mid-1990s, it was a horrible thing. The priests were all complaining because all their best teachers had left their jobs and were now digging in the fields. And that was the first you know, foreign currency that had come into that community in the 20 years before that. So um, that's not to, to, to dismiss the, the, the issues of what is happening in terms of livelihoods, but, but look at them skeptically. Let's look for data. Let's look for what really is happening, what the, 
What the expert panel says about what's really happening on the ground is a much more nuanced picture of the kinds of dislocations than what we were initially seeing in some op-ed pieces and others. And if we, and, and, I, and, and one of the things that I mentioned to the other panelists here before is that most, and this is a horrible thought, but most of the people who are experts on the Eastern Congo out of the last 10 years are experts in conflict. And none of them, I was speaking to one of them, one of the most well-published at this point. I mentioned to her some of the names of the great anthropologists and others who worked on livelihood issues in the Eastern Congo 30, 40 years ago. She said, yeah, I haven't read those. The stories of what, it, what the agricultural sector is, what it has been, what the histories of developing the, the herds of, of in the herding in the eastern, northeastern Congo. This is the bread, this has been historically the breadbasket of the country. It's densely populated because of its incredible agricultural capacity. And the fact that that has been so destroyed in the course of war and that people have turned to other survival tactics is we can't we can't walk away from that this is how they're surviving but it's absurd to just listen to somebody say oh now there's no work it's awful stop this terrible legislation when this terrible legislation does as i said at the outset exactly what we have recognized to be the necessary t steps towards building accountability, transparency, and enabling those who can, who can make decisions, the voters, the consumers, the shareholders, to play some role to do something. Thank you very much. Yeah, that's what an excellent note on which to um, bring this discussion to a close. Um, I think one thing that I'm taking away is that we still have a lot to learn in terms of grappling with these um, relationships. Um, extractive industry activity and communities, extractive industry activity and the public sector at all levels, how those then relate to the likelihood of violent conflict, what we do today to ensure that in five years' time we're not back where we were five years ago. Um, but the optimistic side of things is that we, not just that we have excellent folk like um, Rees, Isabel, and Peter um, on this case, but we have a lot of interest. And uh, I think um, uh, General Ishola Williams's blog should apply to us as well. It's about time that we started being more engaged in this dialogue and not allow it to be hijacked by, you know, fringe groups who may have vested interests in thing X or thing Y, but that we bring some you know, considered thinking and um, effective strategizing to solve what is probably one of the world's um, most um, difficult issues to resolve. That of areas with an abundance of wealth, but misery like you've never seen before. And I think that this is a great time for us to do it. Uh, thank you very much to um, CPRF for organizing this, um, this um, forum, and thanks to you for joining us. And before we leave, that join me in thanking Rizwan, Isabel Muila, and Peter Rosenblum for excellent um, presentations and for responding to your questions and comments with such candor and detail. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Get you to come up to my class and